Well, I'm so excited today we're going to finally, at long last, get to that uh, passage that we've talked about a lot in Hebrews, Hebrews 12, uh, 1 and 2. It's, it's my favorite two verses in Hebrews and two of my favorite verses in the Bible. You know, I grew up memorizing Scripture because my parents had me and my sisters in this program called Bible Memory Association, BMA, and we always had to memorize Scripture. And I can, in theory, we were supposed to do it throughout the week. Uh, but I remember very vividly many a Sunday afternoon we'd come home from church and my mom would not let me go out to play until I could recite the verses for that week uh, correctly. And so these I memorized the, these two verses early on in the old uh, King James and they've always just meant a lot to me. But we've talked about these two verses a lot almost in every one of the 22 messages so far in this series uh, through Hebrews. They... Uh, they're just a powerful summation of the argument the author has been making throughout the letter. And so to introduce this message, I'd like to tell you the story of a marathon runner. You know, a couple of months ago when we were in chapter 9, uh, we looked at the story of Canadian sprinter Ben Johnson, who had in 1988 won the gold medal for the 100-meter sprint, only to have it stripped away when... It was discovered he had cheated. Well, today I'd like to take you back eight years earlier than that shameful moment in sports history to the year 1980 and talk about not a sprinter, but a marathon runner. You may be familiar with the name Rosie Ruiz. She was a Cuban-American marathoner who moved to America from Havana when she was only eight years old. On April 21, 1980, Ruiz won the Boston Marathon's female category with a time of 2 hours, 31 minutes, and 56 seconds. It was the fastest female time in Boston Marathon history, as well as the third fastest female time ever recorded in any marathon. However, suspicions quickly mounted about Ruiz. Observers noticed, for example, that she was not panting or coated in sweat, and her thighs were less lean and muscular muscular than would be expected for a world-class runner. Uh, In addition, her time of 2 hours, 31 minutes, 56 seconds was a striking improvement, more than 25 minutes, ahead of her reported time in the New York City Marathon, which had happened just six months earlier. When asked by a reporter why she didn't seem fatigued after the grueling race, she said, quote, Well, I got up with a lot of energy this morning. Well, some uh, female competitors thought that it was odd that when asked what she had noticed about the suburb of Wellesley while running through it, kind of a tradition for the Boston Marathon, she didn't mention any of the students of Wellesley College who traditionally cheered loudly for the first female runners as they passed the campus. Most significantly, though, no other runners could recall seeing her. She later released stress test results showing her resting heart rate at 76, where most female marathon runners have a resting heart rate at most in the 50s and sometimes even lower. Canadian runner Jacqueline Garreau was told that she was leading the race at the 18-mile mark. You know, as you run, they kind of tell you at different points who's in the lead. And when she passed the 18-mile mark, they said, you're in the lead, you're in the lead. Patty Lyons (coughs) was told she was second at the 17-mile mark. Ruiz could not have passed either of them without having been seen. 
Several spotters at checkpoints throughout the course also didn't remember seeing Ruiz in the first group of women, and she didn't show up in any pictures or video footage. Well, as it turns out, she had not run the entire race. She jumped onto the course less than a mile from the finish line. Two spectators, Harvard students, John Faulkner and Sola Mahoney, recalled seeing Ruiz burst out of a crowd of onlookers on Commonwealth Avenue half a mile from the finish. I mean, she really didn't think this plan through very well. After a short investigation, she was stripped of her title eight days later. And although she never admitted her fraud publicly, she did admit it to an acquaintance. And to that acquaintance, she claimed that she never had intended to win. Uh, she said, I jumped out of the crowd not knowing that the first woman hadn't gone by yet. She said, believe me, I was as shocked as anyone when I came in first. <laughs> It was later discovered that she had cheated in the New York City Marathon the same way. And not surprisingly, Ruiz went on to live a life of crime, being arrested multiple times, spending time in prison over the years for embezzlement and even cocaine dealing. Well, sadly, Ruiz, uh, R Rosie Ruiz died just two summers ago in July, on July 2019. She didn't finish the Boston or New York City Marathons well, and she didn't finish the race of life well either. What would cause someone to take the easy way out of a race? That's the question before us as we continue this journey through Hebrews. We've been talking about how to have an unshakable faith, trusting God in trying times. We last left off with chapter 11, which we spent two weeks on talking about unwavering faith and the examples that we have of great men and women of the faith through history. But today we come to what I'm calling the race is on. You know, the Christian life is a race. It's a journey. It involves ups and downs, good times and difficult times, accomplishments and failures, joy and heartache, moments of beaming pride and times of regret. That's true universally. How can we run this race effectively? You know, God's Word gives us everything we need for life and godliness. And our text this morning, these two very powerful verses, provide some important principles, I think, to help us finish strong. To finish strong. Don't quit before you're through. You know, my, my father-in-law used to tell the joke about uh, the, the young preacher who was known for uh, going on and on and on. I don't know why he told me that joke, but anyway, for whatever reason. Uh, and he said uh, the preacher had a particularly long message, and he, he asked uh, some uh, elderly gentleman from the congregation after the sermon, how'd you like my message? And the man said, well, it would have been great if you'd have quit when you were through. <laughs> well... <laughs> That might be good advice for a preacher or a teacher or a speech giver. Make sure you quit when you're through. But when it comes to the Christian life, the caution is a little different. It's don't quit until you are through. Don't quit too early. Church history is filled with examples of Christians who quit before they're through. Christians who gave up when the going got tough, dropped out because they couldn't handle it or tried to take a shortcut around life's difficulties. 
So I want to kind of work through this passage, and I see five distinct ways that the writer here, uh, drawing on everything that he said now for 11 chapters, tells us how to finish strong in the race of life. And the first way is this, learn from the saints. Learn from the saints. Now, the word saint in English has evolved to mean something it absolutely is not, at least according to God's word. The Catholic Church taught that saints were those people who were highly venerated and achieved quasi-divine status, and we should even pray to them. But the Bible knows nothing of that sort of thing. A saint in Scripture is simply one who's saved by faith and part of the family of God, as opposed to unbelievers. And we see it used that way throughout the New Testament. For example, at the end of Romans 15, Paul says, I'm now going to Jerusalem to minister to the saints, to minister to believers, brothers and sisters in Christ. Or in 1 Corinthians 14, Paul says, God is not the author of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. That is, all the churches of believers. Paul often begins his letters and addresses them to the saints, such as in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 1. You know, the writer of Hebrews actually uses the word saints a couple of times in the same way, talking about brothers and sisters in Christ. For example, at the end of the letter, he concludes by saying, Greet all those who rule over you and all the saints. Tell our brothers and sisters hello, in other words. Uh, so when we say learn from the saints, the first thing the writer wants us to know is we need to learn from brothers and sisters in Christ. And he's appealing to this long list of saints that he had provided in the preceding chapter, believers who lived out and served the Lord as great men and women of faith. So let's take a look at verse 1. It starts out, therefore, and, and therefore, of course, is a connecting word, in Greek and in the translation in English, it always points back to something previous. And in this case, it points back not just to the immediate hall of faith in chapter 11, as we've called it, but to the entire argument the author has been making in the epistle. I mean, if we were to go back and trace through some of the key points, basically what he's saying is, in light of the superiority of Christ, for example in light of the rewards that still await us in the coming earthly kingdom, in light of the example set by these great men and women of faith that have gone before us, do this. The next phrase he says is, we also, therefore we also, you know, that's another key technique of the writer, which I love, uh, is that whoever it was, again, we don't know for sure. I tend to lean towards the Apostle Paul writing Hebrews, but we can't be dogmatic about that. But whoever he was, he includes himself in these exhortations repeatedly. We are facing tough times. We are in this together. How can we get through it? Remember the context. I know it's been a while because of my travel schedule, but the book of Hebrews is written in the late 60s AD during a time when Nero, the Roman emperor who was losing his mind, was intensely persecuting believers. And many of them were being persecuted to the point of death, martyred. And so, consequently, these Jewish believers, the, the, the audience, the original audience of Hebrews were Jews who had gotten saved and become born-again Christians. Many of them, in facing such horrific persecution, were contemplating turning their back on the church and reverting back to Judaism, just kind of slipping back in to the safe haven, as they viewed it, of Judaism, because uh, uh, Nero wasn't persecuting the Jews yet. And so... Uh, the writer is challenging them, no, don't do it. Don't do it. Stay strong. Hang on to the faith. You can do it. But he does it by appealing to we. We also, 
He said, we're in this together. You know, you've heard of the Me Too movement? Well, this was the first We Too movement. We too are in this together. We too need to walk by faith and support and encourage one another. And then he directly appeals back to that preceding chapter. Since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. You know, we dissected this several weeks ago in that discussion of unwavering faith, but he's pointing to the saints of old as examples to be followed. Look at that word witnesses there, the last word that I've got highlighted in yellow. It's actually the Greek word martus. It's where we get our English word martyr. Now, we think of martyr exclusively in the terms of someone who lays down their life for a cause or for Christ, for, Christ, for Christian faith. But the Greek word martus is used 34 times in the New Testament, and primarily most of the time it refers to someone who is, is a witness to something else or testifies. For example, and we, we brought this up coincidentally in our Bible study hour this morning, in Matthew 18, Jesus is giving instruction about disciplining a believer in the assembly. This isn't the church yet, even though he talks about the church. It's the church hadn't come into existence yet. The word church just means assembly. And he says, if that erring brother will not hear, take with you one or two, that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, martus, that's the Greek word martus. Or we could go to Acts 1 where Jesus himself says, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be my witnesses, martus. That is, you shall testify uh, about me to the ends of the earth. The book of Revelation calls Jesus Christ himself the ultimate witness, the ultimate martus, which really is kind of the point the writer of Hebrews has been making all along, and as we shall see, he's going to go on to say that we should look not only to the saints of old as our witnesses, our martus, but to the Savior himself, the ultimate witness. But sometimes the word martus does mean actual martyr. For example, Paul in Acts 22 is referring back to the martyrdom of Stephen, and he uses that same word. He calls Stephen a martyr. And here in the New King James, even though it's the same word, martus, it translates it martyr instead of witness. So like all words, it's got to be de decided upon in its context. Is it a witness? Is it a martyr? And I think to some extent, the saints of old were both. Those brothers and sisters of, of faith that have gone before us were both witnesses to the goodness and faithfulness of God, but many of them were also martyrs. Many of them paid the ultimate sacrifice. So they serve as both a model and a motivation. Now sometimes you'll see Bible teachers refer to witnesses here as spectators, yet nowhere is the term martyrs ever used in the sense of a spectator. So, you know, don't I think we need to reject the notion that somehow these great men and women of the faith are sitting in the bleachers of heaven looking over the railing and watching us on earth. Uh, first of all, you know, believers don't become bionic human beings with supernatural eyesight ability when they die. Human beings are human beings. We're not gods. We don't have unlimited sight. So, uh, you know, we often will say uh, our dearly departed so-and-so is watching us from heaven. Well, that's not biblical. There's no sense anywhere in the Bible where they can watch us from heaven. That said, God, of course, is God, and he may, at his discretion, call someone into his office in heaven and say, hey, sister so-and-so or brother so-and-so, I want to give you a glimpse of what's going on on earth. He could do that. We just don't have a biblical record of that. But in any event, 
Uh, I want to dispel that notion that somehow the writer is motivating us because we have fans cheering us on in heaven. That's not the idea. They are an example. They're an example to us. So we need to learn from the saints. That's the first step in finishing strong. You know, a wise person learns from others. Uh, the top athletes in their field all achieve greatness by studying other great athletes. They watch film. They learn their techniques. I mean, this is true in any field. World-class chess players, for example, study thousands of past games by other top players to learn from their moves. If you want to finish strong, it begins by looking back. There's a lot to learn from those who have been there before us. In fact, I would venture to say, if we were to go back and review chapter 11, uh, there's nobody in this room that couldn't find one or two people to relate to with some experience or life circumstance that they went through and maintained the faith, held strong, looked to the Lord, and, and, and endured. Right? So learn from the saints. Number two is lay aside the sins. Lay aside the sins. You have to get rid of the fleshly sins that hold us back. Now, what does this mean? Well, of course, we'll never achieve sinless perfection this side of glory. But we can grow in our spiritual life so that certain sins become less of a problem. See, just as an athlete learns how to correct his mistakes... You know, we're watching the Masters right now, or experiencing the Masters right now in our country. You know, a golfer might overcome his tendency to slice the ball, right? Well, we too can grow in our spiritual walk and learn how to lay aside or avoid those behaviors that tend to set us back, right? We've got to get rid of those sins. That's what he says if we continue on the next part of this verse. Let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us. The simple fact of the matter is sin and the spiritual life don't mix. You cannot be living a sinful life and hope to finish the spiritual race strong at the same time. As we grow in the Spirit and in the knowledge of God's Word and become more sensitive to the Spirit's convicting presence, we recognize the traps of the devil that try to get us off course. As we mature in the faith, we're able to withstand temptation more often. You know, this writer has already rebuked his readers for their immature faith. If you go back to chapters 5 and 6, and part of that immaturity meant that they still had some basic sinful tendencies that were weighing them down. You know, the Christian life is a struggle, and it involves recognizing our weaknesses and overcoming them. You go to Galatians 5, Paul says, walk in the Spirit and you won't fulfill the lust of the flesh. Why not? Why should we Walk in the Spirit. Well, because the flesh lusts against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh, and they're contrary to one another. When you're feeding the flesh, you're going to go down a, a quagmire and a, a road that does not lead to, to very pleasant things. And you're not going to finish strong. But if you walk in the Spirit, you won't fulfill the lust of the flesh. If we go back to verse 1, he says the, these sins so easily ensnare us. And uh, the old King James says the, the, that beset us. In fact, you'll hear people talk about the besetting sins. Well, that comes from this passage. But the phrase, so easily ensnares us, is actually, you know, one word. It's four words in English, but it's one word in Greek. 
Euperistatos is the word. And uh, that's not an easy one to say because it's very rare. In fact, it's the only time it's used in the entire New Testament, Euperistatos. If we translated it literally, it would mean the sin that stands well around or easily encompasses us. One Greek lexicon describes it as, quote, entangling and holding on tight. So, if you look at it in the context here, verse 1, the author is sort of making a conceptual play on words. Instead of letting sin easily encompass us, we should call to mind the witnesses of the faith whose examples encompass or surround us. So don't be dragged down by these sins. Throw them off. Get rid of them. Identify them and work on them. Again, we're not going to be perfect until we put off this fleshly body. But we are called in this spiritual battle to walk by faith, not by sight. To continue to strive. It ought to be three steps forward, two steps back. I mean, You would never think of entering an important athletic contest without first formulating a plan, a strategy. Likewise, why would you get up each morning for the next leg in the race of the Christian life without planning ahead and determining how are you going to handle those sins that so easily beset you? Well, how do we do that? How do we do that? Well, I like to go to Romans 6 where Paul gives us some very powerful practical application about the sanctification process, growing in the Lord. And in Romans 6 he says, What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace abound? Certainly not. The Greek there is meganoita, God forbid. But notice what he says, how shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? So the first step to setting aside those sins is to recognize you've died to sin. You're not the same person that you were. Understand your identity in Christ. He goes on to say, he who has died has been set freed from sin. See, when you trusted in Jesus Christ, and began, became born again, the Spirit was quickened within you, the Holy Spirit took up residence, you're no longer a slave of sin. In fact, Paul says, Reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. It's interesting that in this great magnum opus of Romans that is so rich with biblical truth, you have to wait all the way to verse 11 of chapter 6 before you get to the first command in the book of Romans. In Greek, the commands are in the imperative form. And the first imperative occurs right here in Romans 6, 11. It's the word reckon. What's the first command that under the inspiration of the Spirit Paul chooses to give to the church, to you and I, to believers? Consider yourselves dead to sin. You've been set free. And yet how often, as we go through this race of life, do we, even though we've been set free from sin, voluntarily and willingly go back and enslave ourselves again to those same old besetting sins. Now I want to show a short uh, video clip here to illustrate and, and hopefully paint a picture in your mind of what it means when we enslave ourselves again to sin. As a child of the king, we act like a child of the pauper. Discounting our identity in Christ and our position in him, we instead choose to willingly step right back in and imprison ourselves uh, to sin. So it's an excellent little video clip from one of my favorite theologians, Barney Fife. Okay? Now I apologize, the quality of the picture is because it's old black and white TV converted into digital, but you can definitely see it well enough to get the idea. It's about four minutes long, I think you'll get 
a kick out of this uh, humorous. Now, let me set the stage, though. So, in the episode, Opie and his friends had gotten in trouble. If I recall, it was for throwing rocks at a lamppost. And so, Sheriff Taylor had just lectured them. You know, don't do that again. Well, Barney <laughs> didn't feel like the lecture was strong enough. And so, he wanted to add his own pearls of wisdom. So, here we go. Let's watch this. But you remember, behave yourself and tell that new boy the same goes for him. Just a minute, boys. Andy, I'd like to say something if you don't mind. Uh, Barney. Please, huh? This is important. Now, boys, I'd like to just add a word or two to what the sheriff has said so as to make everything absolutely clear. I think that it's only fair to warn you that if you keep on getting into trouble and breaking the law, it can only lead to one thing, incarceration. <laughs> now, I know none of you likes the idea of being incarcerated. The idea does scare you a little bit, doesn't it? Yeah, and we don't even know what it means. <laughs> <laughs> well, to be incarcerated... I know what it means. It's like when a doctor gives you a shot. <laughs> no. no, that's inarculated. No, I mean jail, locked up. Now, boys, if you'll just step over here a minute. Uh, Barney, Andy, please. I... I'm not finished. <laughs> boys, these are our maximum security cells. This is where convicted persons are inarculated. Inarculated. <laughs> inarculated. Like when the doctor gives you a shot. They know about Yes, boys, take a good look. This is the last stop on the road of crime. A man confined to prison is a man who has given up his liberty, his pursuit of happiness. No more carefree hours. No more doing whatever you want, whenever you want. No more peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. <laughs> a man in prison is under 24-hour surveillance. All his activities laid out for him until he has paid his debt to society. Yes. Why can't you have peanut butter in prison? <laughs> Where did it all begin? Barney. It began one fine day on a street corner when he broke a street lamp. Barney. Where did it all end? Right here. Yes, take a good look, boys. Because it definitely is no fun when that iron door clangs shut on Definitely is no fun. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, I believe that's all the uh, deputy had to say. Come on, boys, you can go on now. But remember, behave yourself. Self a little incarcerated, didn't you? No more carefree hours. No more doing what you want to, when you want to. No more peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. I'll tell you what we'll do in your case, though. If you're good, if you're very good, we throw some peanuts in your cell, you can jump up and down and make your own peanut butter. Are you going to get the key? Hmm? Open this door. Oh, you, uh, you figure you paid your debt to society? Oh, all right. We'll, uh, we'll let you out. 
Alright, you can go. But remember, it is definitely no fun when that iron door clangs shut on you. You the funny papers, you know that? It's your wig and a dress, and you're another Emmy Schmaltz. Oh, I love it. It definitely is no fun when that iron door clangs shut on you. Well, it's not. I mean, it's really not. It, that's, the, that's the great deception, is that the pleasures of sin seem so enticing. And then like that look on Andy's, I mean, on Barney's face when that door shuts, it's like, oh, what have I done? What if I did it again? You know, because he's notorious for doing that. One reason so many believers fail to finish strong is because they've confined themselves to this prison house of sin. And that limits their effectiveness. Lay aside the sins. Lay aside the sins. Number three is lean into the suffering. So now the writer is going to deal with the issue at hand head on with his original readers. What his readers were facing required endurance. This was no easy race. It was not a casual morning jog or some kind of stroll in the park. Uh, these were not first world problems. They were experiencing intense suffering. Suffering is one of the easiest ways to derail the Christian. You know, most Christians don't have a good track record, if you'll pardon the pun, when it comes to suffering. We tend to obsess about our pain. We, when something tragic rocks our world, we instinctively shift into the blame game. Why God? Why me? Why now? Why this? You know, I discuss how suffering affects unbelievers in chapter 7 of my book, Top 10 Reasons. But suffering can also have a dramatic effect on believers. The writer challenges us to lean into our suffering. Don't recoil, don't get bitter, don't shake your fist toward heaven. Lean into it. Accept it. See how God wants to use suffering in your life. And know that you'll always come out on the other side of that deep, dark valley better for it. Let's see what he has to say here in this last part of verse 1. Run with endurance the race that is set before us. There are two key words in this last phrase that I want to focus on. The first is that word race. Race. Now, we talked about this word way back in January at our Plum Creek Chapel annual meeting. I don't know, does anybody remember the three key words that we talked about for the year that we wanted to kind of remember and focus on? Uh, fight, delight, unite. Fight, recognizing that things are changing in this world and it's not going to be an easy road to be a Christian. Delight in the goodness of God and unite with one another because we're all in this together. And when we were talking about that first key word, fight, we talked about this very verse and this word, race. And we said the word translated race there is the Greek word agon. It's where we get the English word agony. Agony. So that should tell you something about this race. The race the writer is referring to here is an intense spiritual battle, an agonizing fight. The word agon is used only six times in the New Testament, five times by Paul and once here in Hebrews, what we're looking at. It's one of the reasons why we think, you know, Paul, often we see that word, it's just a uniquely Pauline word and it appears once in Hebrews. The verb form of agon, agonitsamai, is used seven times, again, five times by Paul and twice by Jesus. 
But, you know, the world tells us the ultimate goal of this life is to be as pain-free as possible. I want you to think about that with me for just a moment. That's the world's perspective. That you're doing well, life is okay, life is good if you're as pain-free as possible. No. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible tells us the goal of this earthly life is to have as much faith as possible, trusting God along the way, regardless of any pain we face. See, a life of no suffering is just an illusion in a world that's under the curse of sin. If you think you can achieve some kind of life on earth that is pain-free, trouble-free, suffering-free, that's a mirage. This is Satan's domain. The whole world is under the, 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 the sway of the wicked one. So stop looking for that. Instead, lean into the suffering when it comes your way. Now, we don't have time to, to get into a whole theology of suffering, but just know that sometimes suffering comes because of our own behavior. It's just the reality of the consequence of sin. And, of course, the answer there is, as I said, to don't do it. But often suffering comes through no fault of our own. It's that we live in an inequitable world, a fallen world. And when the suffering comes, we don't need to run from it. We need to lean into it. Let's look at some of the usages of this word agon. For example, it's used by Paul in 1 Thessalonians 2 when he, talks, when he says, As you know, we were bold in our God to speak to you the gospel of God in much conflict. Translated conflict, not race, but it's the same word, agon. Agon. Or in Colossians, when he uses the verb form and he says, To this end I also labor, striving. Agonitsamai. Agonizingly working uh, according to the working which is in me, which is mightily. And then again, in the passage that we had in our uh, bulletin, we actually forgot to read it. I had asked Pastor John to, to read it, but I was going to be setting up for the live stream here. And then Jeff prayed. When he prayed, I was so excited to get started, I completely snubbed you. I apologize for that, Pastor John. But uh, I encourage you to go home and read this because Paul uses this phrase, 1 Corinthians 9, 25, when he uses the word competes. Again, agon. See, the Bible wasn't written in English. So, so far we've seen race, conflict, striving, competes, all the same word in Greek. And, and so what he's saying here, he's talking about not heaven, but the rewards that we receive for faithful living on earth. And he says, it's an agonizing competition. At the end of his life, Paul uses the word when he says, I have fought the good fight. That's, that's agon. I fought the good fight. See, the spiritual battle is fought by faith, not by flesh and blood. I have kept the faith, he said. And this is what the writer of Hebrews has been saying. Take your eyes off of your suffering and instead look to the Lord. Look to the greater cause. Look to what lies ahead. Recognize God's got this. In his uh, second letter, written just before he died, Paul said he's fought the good fight of faith. He was literally moments from martyrdom. It could have been days at the soonest, maybe weeks at the most. So he was at the end. He said, I've looked back. And notice he says, I've finished the race. It's confusing because we're talking about the race of life. When, Paul, when the writer of Hebrews uses that word in Hebrews 12.1, 1, 
But that's not the same word that Paul uses here in 2 Timothy 4.7. The word race here is dramas. It means course or mission in life. So if we were to sort of use the nuances of these two Greek words, he said, I fought the agonizing race and I have finished my course in life successfully. I finished well. I finished strong. I kept the faith. The other word that I want us to look at is the word endurance. The word endurance. This is a very key word, hupomene. It means patience, endurance, fortitude, steadfastness. He says, run with endurance this agonizing race. Endure. You know, we see this word used frequently uh, in the New Testament. James says, let patience, that's the same word, hupomene, have its perfect work that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Perfect there doesn't mean perfect in the sense that we use it, meaning flawless. It just means mature. And that's what he's challenging these Hebrew Christians to do, is to be mature. In Romans 5, Paul says, Not only that, we also glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance, hupomene, and perseverance, character, and character, hope. Later on in Romans, he says, If we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with perseverance. That's it in a nutshell. You can't see sometimes beyond the suffering. It's all consuming. But persevere anyway. Persevere anyway. The writer has used this word hupomene earlier in Hebrews in chapter 10 when he just explicitly said, you have need of endurance. You have need of endurance. So in our text when he says run with endurance, this is just again summarizing what he's been saying all along. The writer challenges us to endure the agonizing race of life because there are no shortcuts in the Christian life that will allow us to avoid suffering. It's a reality. Jesus said, in the world you will have tribulation. It's the words of Jesus. And it's true for anybody who pays attention. Paul said, everyone who desires to live godly will suffer persecution. So it's a reality and we need to lean into it instead of wishing and hoping for it to go away. And this is never easy. I called a friend today that's just going through a horrific time, um, or this week, not today. But uh, and you know, the Lord put him on my heart, and I called him. And you know, you know how psychologists have those like lists of things that if you're going through any one of these, it's a pretty serious stressor. If you're going through two, it's a, well, he's got like five of them going on right now. And you know, what can I say? I mean, I don't have a magic wand. I don't have any pill I can give him to make it easier? What do you say to someone who's lost a loved one or you know, going through cancer? Um, I mean, all, all I can say is, is just lean in. I mean, God is bigger than this. And then the fourth is, the fourth key is to look to the Savior. And so we get to verse 2. Endurance, setting aside the sins, remembering the examples of those who have gone before us are not the only keys. It comes down to fixing our eyes on Jesus, like the song that we sang this morning. Jesus has been the hero of this letter all along. Remember how the letter began? Chapter 1, verse 1 of Hebrews. You know, God, who in various ways and at various times has spoken to us in times past through the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us through His Son, who is the express image of His Lord, it's all about looking unto Jesus. And look how he describes Jesus. The whole second verse here is, is sort of 
packing into Jesus all that he is in our lives. He's the author and finisher of our faith. Our relationship with him begins by faith when we believe the gospel. We live by faith, looking to him, as the writer is talking about here. And then ultimately, when we cross the finish line, we're going to see him face to face. It's a life of faith. And what a day that will be when we get to see him as he is. Have you ever thought about that moment? When time shall be no more and... We leave this the struggling ebb and flow of this life and we see Jesus, the one who shed his blood for us. What a moment. He's the author and finisher of our faith. He endured the cross. There's that same word, hupomene, that, that, Paul, that the writer used in verse 1 here describing Jesus, the ultimate example. It's actually a compound word. I didn't mention this, but it's hupa, meaning by or under, and meno, meaning abide. So it's to abide under. <laughs> That's really what persevering is, abiding under suffering, you know, living under suffering. And uh, we are to abide under Christ the way he abided under the Father. So look to the Savior. Who are you looking at? Where's your focus? Is it on the suffering or is it on Jesus? And then finally, look forward to ultimate salvation. Look forward to ultimate salvation. By salvation, I'm not referring to our deliverance from the penalty of sin. We talked about this in our 9 o'clock hour. That's eternal salvation. But the word salvation in Scripture is used two-thirds of the time to refer to physical deliverance. I'm talking here about that physical aspect of deliverance, the ultimate deliverance when we leave this earth under the curse of sin and go into sinless eternity. The word saved just means deliverance. And the idea of ultimate deliverance into the kingdom one day is the theme that the authors brought up again and again. Remember back in chapter 2, he said, we're talking about the world to come. That's what we're speaking about. Because, boy, the world you're living in now, there's not much to it. It's not fun. It's not good. It's not enjoyable. It's a, it's a bad deal. And you know, even though right now none of us may be facing the type of persecution that many believers have for the last 2,000 years and, and are right at this moment in other parts of the world, we still need to recognize that there's a better world coming. And then he alludes to this better world coming here in chapter 2 when he says Jesus Christ has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. That's the throne in waiting. That's not the kingdom's throne. The heaven Never confuse the heavenly throne with the earthly throne. A lot of people do that. Jesus promised that he will come again someday and take the throne in the rebuilt physical temple just as the prophets of old said he would. And when he does, that's when we're going to experience ultimate deliverance. Believers in the church age will, of course, be coming back with him to rule and reign. We will have been raptured seven years prior. But it's all part of the same return, the fulfillment, the inauguration of the kingdom. Jesus himself said, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the holy angels with him, then, then he will sit on his throne. He's not there yet. So finishing strong means looking forward to his return, to our ultimate salvation. You know, you know why so many Christians are shipwrecked on the avenues of life? Because they don't ever think about the end times. They don't ever think about the study of eschatology. They don't even think about the return of the Lord. It's all about here and now. So it's no wonder. If this, like Paul said, if in this life only I had hope, I would be of all men most pitiable. So of course... People are casting aside their faith right and left and ending up in the ditch. But, but we look forward to our ultimate salvation. We look forward when he 
we see you know, no more death and no more sorrow or crying, no more pain, the former things passing away. And when will that happen, by the way? The next verse tells us when he sits on the throne. When he sits on the throne, that's when it'll happen. He's not there yet. And when he does, he's going to make all things new. So look forward to that ultimate salvation. It's a tough race. I mean, it is. It, it's not easy. And I don't, believe me, if you knew our journey, 32 years I've been in ministry, almost 30 years been married, and our life's no different than any others. We've had some pretty serious heartache. And remember, Proverbs says, the heart knows its own bitterness. A stranger doesn't share its joy. So we can't ever compare and say, oh man, I've gone through worse than you. We've all gone through bad stuff. Horrific stuff. But hang in there. It'll be worth it all. It'll be worth it all. So there it is. Five steps. Learn from the saints. Lay aside the sins. Lean into the suffering. Look to the Savior and look forward to ultimate salvation. Rosie Ruiz did not finish strong. She chose the easy way out and forfeited the reward. What about you? Here's the takeaway in one simple phrase. Don't quit until you're through. Don't quit until you're through. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for just this just strong reminder from your word about the value of endurance and faithfulness and all the resources we have at our disposal. Lord, help us to surround ourselves with the lessons from men and women of faith, to learn from them. Help us to, to focus ultimately on your Son and our Savior. Lord, if there is one here within the sound of my voice that doesn't know Jesus, I pray that even right now in simple faith, they would place their trust in Jesus Christ, the Son of God who died and rose again for their personal sins. And in so doing, would become part of the family of God. And then, Lord, those of us who know you through your Son, I just pray that you'd give us that perseverance that we need. Help us to look to you, not to our suffering, and to trust you no matter what this world throws at us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks, JB, for that encouraging message. Let's do just that. Let's think about heaven and let's...